Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. If I were to say the words health information, what would it mean to you? Do you imagine patient charts or information that you find about yourself online? Perhaps the better question is, what does health information mean for each of us and to our health system? The information collected and stored in our personal health records is one of the most valuable assets within healthcare. It's why hackers and cyber criminals increasingly target our healthcare organizations and systems. It is used to provide patient care when a physician or other clinician looks at a patient's chart. It is used to improve quality and safety of care. It is used to conduct clinical research and learn about the efficacy of treatments and technology. It is used for decision-making and funding at an organizational and system level. And of course, during our pandemic, health information, not just the numbers in the spread, but who got what shot and when and what happened has all been critical to make public health decisions. But have you thought about how and by whom that data is put into charts and databases every day? Back in the 1950s, health information was managed by technicians called medical record librarians, and no word of a lie, many of them worked in the basements of our hospitals where these paper records were filed and archived. Over the years, medical record librarians evolved to become health record technicians and administrators and eventually health information management professionals who engage in at least two years of formal education and must become certified through a professional college to practice. I'd argue that many of us working in the health system aren't aware of these professionals and the important work they do to support the effective collection and use of high quality health data and information to protect its privacy, security, and integrity. And I'm pretty sure that if ICD-10 came up on a Jeopardy screen, even most healthcare professionals would get the question wrong. So who are these unsung health professionals and what is their role in not only our current health system, but in shaping its future? How does this information get used and why should we care about the quality of it? And with the increased use of technology in all parts of our health system, how will this impact the profession? To help us answer these questions, I'm joined by Monique Rasmussen, Regional Director of Coding and Informatics at Providence Health in British Columbia, where she also manages all the coding resources, data quality analysts, and clinical documentation specialists for all of the health authorities within the lower mainland of BC. With more than 27 years of HIM experience gained between Ontario and BC, Monique provides leadership and strategic direction to not only those organizations in BC, but to the rest of Canada, as Monique is also the current chair of the board of the Canadian Health Information Management Association, which accredits the schools that teach HIM and also certifies those that work in the profession. Hi, Monique, and welcome to the HQ. Hi, Dale. Thanks so much for having me here today. It's great to see you again. Um, and I'm really looking forward to having this conversation about something I think a lot of people really just probably take for granted and just sort of don't really know how it happens or where it happens. So um, maybe you could start with what your definition as, of health information is and, um, and why is it important? Sure. So when I think about health information, I just think of um, everything uh, that in- impacts the patient journey from, you know, being registered, coming into an acute care center in a hospital, being registered by registration staff, 
um, moving through the journey, the documentation in their record, the creation of their record, the documentation in that record, um, then the distribution of the patient information, you know, after the patients left the hospital, uh, that goes on to talk about patient care, of course, in the community and follow up. And then also uh, the coding piece, which of course is um, sort of my subject expertise and, and sort of the world that I live in right now, um, just about the coded data and the impact that that has, you know, on, on research, um, national benchmarking, um, funding for the hospitals. Um, yeah. So when, so you use the word coding, and I know that um, that may be confusing to a lot of people because when they think of coding and in our common vocabulary, they probably think of people who you know create video games and other kinds of computer sides of things. So what does coding mean in the context of health information? Right, exactly. Yes, I actually get those questions a lot when I explain what I do to people at, uh, that I meet. So it's it's definitely medical coding, not computer coding. So it's basically taking you know the the information in a patient's record, more so the diagnostic and interventional, so procedural information in a patient's record, and translating that to alphanumeric codes, which are called uh, ICD-10 and CCI for the intervention piece. And that information, um, that coded information is actually sent over to uh, CAIHI, which is the Canadian Institute for Health Information. And that information is used by CAIHI um, to provide reporting to um, provincial uh, like ministries of health, um, federal bodies, also back to the hospitals, and it's used in calculations for patient funding and national benchmarking. So if I understand correctly, so that a lot of that information gets, I guess, aggregated by CAIHI and then is used um, to sort of tell the story about what's happening in Canada or... Exactly. Yes, it's that's exactly it, Dale. You totally have it correct. That's to tell the story about, um, you know, what's happening with the patients in hospital settings, um, and, and what their healthcare journey is like. The resources that are being used. Um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> okay. Um, Yes, basically, it's it's used to talk about um, what's base, what's happening with patients in uh, hospital settings, you know, what their diagnoses are, what the what procedures are being used, what the cost of these hospital stays are, lengths of length of stay, so how long patients are staying in hospitals, um, and so forth. And so, and, and why is that? I guess it, important back to the organizations, like so, back to Providence uh, Health, uh, sure. where you work. Where does that information, like, how does that translate, I guess, into, into the way they deliver care or the rest of their operations? Right. So it's used for planning, of course. So uh, for bed management, for uh, resource utilization, um, you know, if I can give you an example. So when, mm -hmm. you know, uh, data is submitted um, in terms of emergency cases, so how many patients are seen in the emergency in a given uh, fiscal year, uh, what their uh, diagnosis are, procedures, things like that. You know, when the hospitals look at this data that comes back and see that they're basically, they do not have enough beds to care for the patients, that's when they start talking about, um, uh, you know, redevelopment and creating larger um, hospitals uh, like for space, for bed space, and also the services that they provide. You know, are they um, accurately providing uh, the services that the patients are, are needing that are coming to the hospital, right? So that do they have enough equipment? Do they have enough specialties in that um, 
a hospital setting that are dealing with those com like complex patients that are coming to see them. So it's really all about planning, resourcing for the hospital, bed utilization, um, making sure the hospital can deliver that uh, great patient care um, and using the data to help provide um, the story about what's happening really when people are walking through their doors and receiving uh, care and service. Okay, so that's helpful. And uh, you talked a little bit about sort of, and I, I think I mentioned it at the beginning in the introduction as well around the, so you said the, the CCI side of the, the ICD-10 component. So, so uh, maybe you could sort of dig into that a little bit deeper for us as well. Um, how that information gets used in our health system. So that information is also submitted um, to Kaihai, right? It's all submitted as, as uh, the patient app, we call it the patient abstract in, in coding terms. That's all submitted. It, it is also reported back from um, Kaihai to the hospitals, to the ministry, so that they do understand to what, again, what procedures are being uh, done on patients in the acute care settings. Um, and again, for planning purposes, right? So, um, and also in terms of um, maybe just length of stay, right? So patients that have particular procedures, um, so say a hip replacement, joint replacements, you mm -hmm. know, there's um, data that's collected on that and put in specific databases as well, um, just to sort of track and follow uh, what's happening with uh, joint procedures within Canada. Um, and this also, um, leans a bit over to length of stay when people are coming in for scheduled procedures. There's a certain, you know, type of formula or expectation that a person with a certain uh, diagnosis, like a hip replacement, uh, will be in hospital for, say, three to five days recovering, maybe less than that now, actually, maybe one to two days. Um, so that's the expected length of stay. But then when something happens to the patient, say they develop, you know, um, heart-like palpitations or they develop... Uh, some other post-admit comorbidity where they become sicker, you know, all of that data feeds into those calculations about what's happening to the patient. So a patient that came in for a routine hip replacement that actually becomes a little bit ill, that's also reflected in that coded data. And that changes, you know, funding formulas, that changes, um, uh, you know, the, the, the reporting piece of it, it changes maybe planning, and it gives the uh, acute care, you know, the clinical staff insight onto what's happening with some of their patients um, that are supposed to be sort of routine procedures and things um, happen, you know, uh, happen after after that procedure is done. And so would it make a difference as well, I guess, in terms of, um, I guess, planning even, like, I guess, how we do our clinical care? So you, I think in describing what you've around the hip hip replacement, for example, if um, a certain kind of procedure is performed on a, a patient and something happens to that person thereafter, uh, it just seems like it's, you know, it's a story of one person. Mm -hmm. But if that same procedure is performed to 20 people across the country and the same unexpected outcomes happen to those same people, would that then translate into the way those codes and that information is being used to, for us to learn about that or about the efficacy of something or or not yeah so yeah you've you've gotten to you've gotten to a great uh, pathway to talk about hospital harm and yes those are um instances and um data that we capture too um 
hospital harm, there's a, a Kaihai framework where they've outlined a specific amount of diagnosis. I'm going to put myself on the spot. I think it's 27 um, um, diagnosis where patients, um, this happens after they're admitted uh it's called and and it, it follows along that hospital harm framework. Our um, our teams, the teams that I work with at Providence Health, we do some work with patient quality and safety departments, and we look at hospital harm uh, indicators and we look at hospital harm data, and we help sort of support the clinical staff as they're going through those. Um, reports and trying to understand what happened to the patient and looking at those charts and just to, just to understand how maybe some of these cases, uh, well, sort of some of this hospital harm can be prevented um, and, um, and how, so all of that documentation, all of that coding feeds into all of that, uh, all of those conversations. And this is, of course, where um, the hospitals are able to pull out those particular visits um, and those particular patients where uh, that could fall under those hospital harm um, indicators. Okay. And we, we would also, I guess, learn about um, the kinds of devices that might be used as well. Like, um, I think if I've heard correctly that, that you know, in some joint replacements, you might be using materials like maybe plastic or metal or different kinds of metal or different kinds of um, approaches to that. And which ones are working better over time? Or would that be fair as well? Yeah, so there is a joint registry. And again, you're testing me a little bit because I haven't coded in a long time. So there is a joint registry where information like that is documented. So, you know, the part number and the hardware number and sort mm -hmm. of the serial numbers, that's all documented and, um, of course, submitted and kept kept in a database. So when there is incidents of, um, I don't know if they call them recalls, but where equipment is, uh, they've you know, understood that maybe some equipment isn't working uh, as it should be. So there, there is those areas where uh, things are tracked, you know, to, and it, again, this is all about ongoing patient care, right? Because the last thing you want to see happen is somebody comes in for a much needed hip or knee replacement um, and then have the hardware fail. So, uh, and this, this is, again, is all part of the information that's collected by health information pe uh, professionals across yeah, the country. Sorry. Yeah, so I guess that's where I'm trying to go back to then, that if we understand, I guess, the importance of this information and what's being captured, uh, so let's talk about the people who are doing it. I mean, who are these people and, and where do they work? Um, I think if I was to go through a hospital, I could probably point out a lot of the people who work in a hospital based on their uniforms or their equipment that they're carrying. How would I know, like, would I see a, a health information management professional or, yeah? Yeah, quite. Uh, well, you would see health information management professionals, not coders per se, but you would see them in registration staff. You know, mm -hmm. you would see them in uh, unit clerks. Um, they, they can be considered health information management professionals. Um, but but the coding staff, which again is sort of my portfolio, um, they're typically working away in the background, very busy. Um, but you wouldn't typically see them unless you came into a health records department and you saw some people maybe working diligently at computers, looking at records and things like that. But, but I, I had a bit of a giggle when you talked about, um, you know, back, back in the day, health records, uh, people were notoriously kept in the basement sort of away from the public. And I think that's still kind of true in some hospital settings, but I feel like we're coming out of the shadows a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
<laughs> but they really are. Um, I did have somebody, one of my colleagues that actually sits on the team of board with me, call, uh, she often calls um, HIN professionals unsung heroes. And I totally agree with her because they are the people that are so knowledgeable um, when it comes to um, pathophysiology and medical terminology. And they're so knowledgeable about what really goes on with the patient during their stay because they are, are reading all about the patient's um, most intimate um, health information, which is in their patient record. Um, so they really uh, have a great understanding of all of the pieces that work together in a hospital um, that affect the patient through their journey. But they are very much working very quietly in the background. I would say when I describe um, a coder, I would say definitely people who are very detail-oriented, who are very um, passionate about making sure that they are doing the best job that they can to reflect what's going on with the patient. I would say their critical thinking skills are fantastic mm -hmm. um, and very typically very quiet and very... Um, yeah, just very quiet and uh, calm, quiet people who just are really um, interested in, in, I think, the medical field and that this is where they find that they can provide the best service um, uh, to the healthcare organizations. I, I, I'm, I'm certainly struck by the, like the, their access to the information about the intimacy side of it that you described there. Um, I know that in this podcast, people can't actually see, but I mean, but how big is a typical patient chart? Um, how many pieces of information or pieces of paper might be in, in captured in that, that these people are sort of being able to read together? Mm, yeah, so it varies, Dale, when you think about like, so an emergency record, it could be just five pages, right? If it's sort of an in and out, you cut your finger, you need a suture. Or if you come into the eMERGE and you're having a cardiac arrest, then the paper starts to grow, right? And then you're admitted. And that chart, you know, you move through the system where you're having lots of diagnostic procedures and interventions, and there's lots of nursing documentation, consultant notes. You know, if you have a surgery, there's the entire OR package where you have the consents and you have the anesthetic records and the OR reports. And, and then you have all of the physician follow-up and progress notes and then the discharge information. And if you have any other allied health that come in, say like a respiratory therapist or a physiotherapist, occupational therapist, all of those uh, specialties and people that touch the patient have to keep a note, a record, right, of what of what they've seen, of, of what uh, they believe the, the treatment should be. Um, and, you know, and then you can talk about, you know, the, men, you know, mental health too. There's a lot of uh, documents that are, are kept on people that are uh, uh, mental health patients. There's lots of information. So the chart can basically go from five pages to a few hundred, depending on, and depending on length of stay. Um, there's also not so much the acute care side, which I talked about, but then there's chronic patients, you know, that are in long-term long-term chronic sites, uh, sorry, units like within the hospital or rehab, say somebody has had a stroke and they come in through eMERGE, they're admitted through the acute side, then they go to rehab for say six to eight weeks recovery where they have to have lots of um, work with, uh, you know, physiotherapies and occupational therapies to as part of their recovery. So it can get quite large. Um, thankfully, we're kind of moving out of a, a patient, or sorry, paper-centered world for the patient record, and we're moving more over to electronic records, which is, which is nice. But for 
HIMs who still have to go in and review the chart, they're still looking at lots of documentation, whether that be on paper or in the electronic format. Yeah, and I guess, and they're connecting the dots, right? I guess if yes. where you've just described in some of those kinds of um, patients, right? They, I mean, they've maybe been touched by 20, 30 more kinds of um, clinicians along the way. And while they may read each other's notes to some degree, probably not in the same level of detail that the HIM um, might be might be working with so that they they are telling that story, I guess, in a different kind of way or reading it differently. Yeah, exactly. And I think, too, you know, there are definitely sort of source documents that coders look at um, that are sort of the, the, the big documents that, t- that talk about m- most of the care. But a lot of times there can be conflicting documentation in the charts. So that's where the coders have to sort of be those, investi- you know, put on that investigation hat where they have to go in and, and either either um, look for more information that gives a more specific um, piece to the diagnosis. Like, mm-hmm. so diabetes, for instance, if they, they want to know if it's type 1, type 2, they want to know if there's any um, complications um, with the patient. That's not always so easily outlined, say, on the discharge summary or maybe the admission record. So they sometimes have to go through the chart just to get a bit more specific um, to be able to assign those codes um, those ICD-10 and those procedural codes to actually make sure they're getting the most specific uh, code that they can get. So again, so the, the, the quality of data is there, right? It's all about quality data and making sure that this, that what happens to the patient is accurately reflected in those codes. Yeah, so I think as you've described the, to investigate, I, I had an, an image of my head of, you know, the, uh, like a detective, I guess, going to a, a crime scene, you know, a forensic <laughs> sort of investigator who's looking at all this different, these the clues and pieces of information and trying to tell a story about what happened before they got there. Would that accurately describe a little bit of what you're sort of describing or... I would say so. I mean, dep- and depending on the quality of, of documentation, you know, how the clinicians are, are how good they are basically about putting that information down either, you know, through a transcribed report or actually handwriting the information. Um, in cases where I'll bring back like the cardiac arrest example, you know, when, when clinicians are there to treat the patient, right? That is their ultimate first and and foremost um, responsibility. So when, you know, when you have somebody um, having a cardiac arrest and all this information has to be documented in terms of times and the procedures that they're doing, you know, it can get a bit uh, kind of messy, you know, in the charts when it comes to documentation and a bit conflicting. So that's where, you know, you have a coder who's they're basically a SME, a subject matter expert when it comes to looking through the chart and they know what they need to capture in terms mm-hmm. of guidelines and standards when it comes to coding. So that's where, yes, they are like a detective and they're trying to put those pieces together again to make sure that they're accurately reflecting what went on with that patient in that situation. Interesting. So the CSI type of people in the, in the world that uh, many of, you know, don't get you know, are the unsung heroes, as you described. So, I mean, how does it feel for people like yourself and your colleagues, I guess, to be unsung or perhaps even unseen um, in terms of your day-to-day work? Um, I mean, does it change the way you feel about yourself or the way your colleagues feel about themselves in terms of their contributions to healthcare and our systems? 
you know, I think for the most part, the HIMs that I know are so humble, right? And they just believe they go to work and they do this job and, and they understand their impact to the healthcare system, but I don't think they're looking for, um, you know, a prize at the end of the day, right? I mm-hmm. think they do it because they they know the importance. They know when they come and they sit down and they open that chart and, the, and, and what they're collecting and the bigger impact it has on the healthcare system. They know that, right? So, but I think they're so humble in so many ways. And I, I see that with every one of them that I meet that um, I don't think they look at it as a just a job because like I said, they understand the importance. But I don't feel like they often um, get enough credit for what they do, right? And I think, um, you know, when the hospitals report data, usually it doesn't really come from typically, um, and I'm just talking about my world, of course, you know, we have decision support departments that take our data, like the data that the coders collect, and they are the ones that distribute it to to the physician groups and to like the senior leadership teams and you know to any of the anybody that's coming and asking for data so i often find that it's maybe the decision support teams um i don't want to say get the credit but maybe the hospitals look at them as the people that are doing all of this work and we you know the coders and the and the, the people that collect the data are often sort of behind you know those people um working quietly and diligently so i think it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, and often, you know, when you talk to HIM, it's it's often, you know, people, do, you know, the comments are people don't know what we do, you know, people, uh, you don't really understand, you know, what, what coding is and the impact that it has. I do feel like, though I mentioned before, I feel like things are starting to change a little bit. I, I feel like, um, and again, just talking about my world, especially with the implementation of the electronic records, I feel like uh, HIM is at the table. They're at, in those big discussions. They're helping with design of those EMRs and EHRs. They're helping with implementation. You know, we're getting more people within HIM that have those systems background, that those um, those ability to uh, help build interfaces, do data validation. So it's coming. I think it's changing and we're finding that. But uh, we still have, I think, a ways to go. Um, And then, of course, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast when you introduced me that I do sit on the board for uh, CHIMA, the Canadian Health Information Management Association. And I think we've come... Um, we've come a long way in the last, you know, few years where um, there's been a lot of work done by the organization to sort of lift up the HIM profession and talk to broader um, groups, sort of even outside of healthcare, just to talk about what health information is and who these people are that work in the background and do all of this work and the skill set that that we can offer. And I think we're starting to see um, health information professionals start to broaden outside of healthcare and start to work in places like insurance offices, um, working on pri- working in, in organizations on privacy, which is sort of outside of the typical, you know, registration clerk or coder or transcription role. Um, so I think things are starting to change, but I think we still have uh, a long way to go. <laughs> yeah. I- I mean, I, I've certainly have heard stories from, uh, you know, hospital administrators and things describing um, when health information management professionals get things wrong or they're in their opinions, get things wrong. It costs them money or or uh, puts them uh, in the, the wrong public light in terms of their performance. Um, 
with that sort of, I mean, is that accurate? Um, yeah, I would say that's accurate. That's, and it's always sort of a touchy subject, right? When you're talking to uh, the group that collects the data, but yeah, that is unfortunately kind of a, a typical response is when, you know, the six senior executives are looking at data and something isn't wrong where there's money, you know, funding hasn't come in or there's been, um, even not so much sometimes about the money, just but about how you said, like the hospital looks like maybe they've got an overabundance cases of harm happening. Um, so yes, the first uh, point of contact, that's when they remember what coding is, right? So you know, <laughs> who's collecting the data and what does this look like? Um, and of course, and that does happen. I mean, in all honesty, that does happen. And, um, but there are, there are, you know, uh, work that happens after that to start doing chart reviews and start working with like quality teams and start working with decision support teams and start working with um, clinical teams to start talking about, you know, clinical documentation improvement because the coders can't make it up. Right. So if the coding um, as hard as they try to get the quality great, um, we can't make it up. So really the documentation has to be great as well. And it has to be fulsome and it has to be accurate and it has to be timely. And that's another thing too, that maybe I could talk about a bit too, is, you know, when a coder is, is trying to finish off, you know, period end and physicians haven't come into either complete discharge summaries or OR reports, which are vital documents in the coding process. Um, it gets really difficult, right, to get that accurate data. And uh, we have found that more times than not, that typically when there is a problem with the coded data, it's because the documentation is either missing or it's inaccurate um, or it's um, not fulsome, right? Like there's just not enough to go on to actually provide that true picture of what's been happening with that patient or patients. Yeah, yeah. so it's a definitely a, a, a team sport and mm. the, garbage in, garbage out sort of approach exactly. to things. Yeah. Um, so maybe just talking a little bit about the future of, of the profession, uh, Monique, and uh, you've talked about the technology that we're moving away from paper, like there's more digital records and things like that, and other kinds of um, changes within healthcare. Um, could you talk a little bit about what the future looks like with all of this change? Sure. So a little bit uh, that that's happening in my world, too. We're always looking at um, technology and not maybe I should preface this, Dale, by saying not as a way to eliminate staff or coding or people. Um, that's definitely not the goal. Uh, the goal is to actually, um, you know, use technology to um Kind of take the burden off of a lot of some of the work that the coders do and even other areas of HIM. But one thing that always, a couple of things that always come to mind when people ask me about technology is um, computer assisted coding. That seems to be sort of a hot topic um, mm -hmm. uh, in, in the coding space across Canada. And we know it's been really, uh, co computer assisted coding has been used in the United States for many, many years successfully. So that is one thing that uh, we're, we're really looking at in Vancouver and like BC is a uh, implementation of computer assisted coding. And um, that again is a way not to, not to take away coding staff, but to actually help coding staff with um, 
being able to, so what computer assisted coding does is it's a piece of software that sort of runs in the background. It has a natural language processing, so it uses NLP, and it basically reads through all of the electronic documentation in the patient record, and it annotates, so it highlights uh, key diagnostic terms and key per, uh, per, sorry, procedural terms, mm-hmm. and brings it sort of to the forefront of the document for the coder. So the coder, you know, usually is reading, when they're reading electronic documentation, it's black and white, it's not very pretty, <laughs> but this annotates and highlights in different colors, so it actually pops it out for the coder. So when they're scanning the documents, they can <clears throat> they can pick up on these terms uh, quite a bit uh, quickly. It also does, it also offers... Um, what's called a coder view. So documents can be brought in from the large electronic record and brought into the CAC um, space. And it kind of gives a coder view. So all of those um, key documents that coders need to look at, it gives them sort of a one one shot view of of all of those documents. So it makes it quite easier to navigate uh, to get to get through all of that information. Um, so So that's, that's where their hope, you know, the hope is that you see like some productivity gains. You also see some maybe improvement in data quality. You take a bit of the burden off of coders so that they can maybe start working. Um, you know, their, their roles can change into other areas such as um, doing the more, more data quality um, and, and, uh, and things like that. And then the other piece that often we talk about just in my world, um, when we talk about computer assisted coding, we also talk about CDI, which is clinical documentation improvement and how there are software programs uh, that's that sort of stack on to the CAC that can help with uh, the clinical documentation improvement work that uh, we also do. And those are things like, so clinical documentation, when I, when I talk about that, I talk about, you know, the education of physicians to, to, to um, teach them sort of how, how to document well, what sort of things are needed when, when you're coding, the impact of poor documentation and what that potentially has on coding and funding and all of those other things that we've talked about. Um, so we actually look to, to moving towards some clinical documentation improvement software as well that sort of tags on to the CAC and this is to be a bit more proactive um, when it comes to our CDI work. Uh, right now, we spend a lot of time doing uh, doing reactive work in terms of there being a problem with the data. We go back, we pull charts, we do manual chart reviews, we sit with clinicians, we sit with quality teams. The CDI tools are meant as sort of real-time um, documentation improvement uh, reviews of charts. Uh, sending real-time notifications to physicians to say this document this documentation is conflicting. Do you do you actually you know mean this or do you mean that? Um, looking through say lab values and saying you know these lab values that come back it looks like the patient could have sepsis. You haven't documented it. Do you wish to? So it's it's things like that where all of that technology is helping again for the broader um, for the for the broad, um, broader, sorry, I lost my train of thought. What I'm trying to say is all of that technology eventually helps with all of the coded data, the information that's in the chart, and then ultimately for patient care, right? Because if the documentation is good in the chart, the, data, the coded data is correct, but then when that documentation is moved out into the community and it's used by um, practicing physicians in the community for follow-up, 
they have an accurate picture of what's been happening with the patient in the hospital. Yeah, so I guess that the, the, the proverbial that, you know, technology or machines are going to steal our jobs or the jobs in this case of health information management professionals is not inaccurate at all. It's, it's simply, it's improving the way they work, making it easier, reducing those 200 page charts into more meaningful pieces of information that still need a person to read them um, and and find the, the right pieces of information. So yeah, correct. You still need that human touch and that, you know, those critical thinking skills. And yeah, you've got it exactly right, Dale. And it's basically what we call just another tool in the toolbox, right? It's it's like having the coding standards. It's having, you know, like having um, another piece of work that we've been doing a lot on is sort of beefing up our interfaces. So, um, you know, adding more, um, you know, when you get into an electronic health record, there's more information that you can pull from the electronic uh, source and bring into the abstracting system so the coders can, they don't necessarily have to keep uh, coding that information, they just have to start verifying. So the roles are kind of changing too from, yes, they still need that that uh, coding skill set and that foundational knowledge of coding, but then they start doing some of that validation based on some of the electronic uh, tools and, and work that we've been doing to get the information into the coding system. So you talk about these changing roles. So how does that impact, I guess, the way you recruit, retain, train, you know, manage your your staff? I mean, mm-hmm. in some of the previous episodes um, on the HQ, we've talked a lot about the current HHR crisis and the challenges of finding people. Um, mm-hmm. And so maybe you could talk about that too. I mean, is there, are you seeing a, a challenge in terms of getting people to do this job? Um, it, do you have enough? And and again, how does it change sort of going forward in terms of the people that you're bringing into the profession? Yeah, that's a good question, Dale. And yes, definitely. We we know that there's a huge recruitment challenge across the, the country when it comes to qualified um, health information professionals. Maybe just your first question there in terms of roles changing, um, especially with all of this sort of technology uh, coming. I think To be honest, I think the schools are doing a great job of starting to write some of that into their curriculum where the students are coming out and they have, they're starting to have a basic understanding of what's, you know, what's coming up with technology and computer assisted coding is what clinical documentation is. So I think some of the new graduates are really starting to understand and they're starting, they they have a a bit of knowledge. So that's great when we're Mm -hmm. starting to hire people. Um, the other pieces we, um, and again, just talking about my portfolio, we do, you know, we do have data analysts and uh, sort of data quality folks and in my portfolio and clinical documentation improvement specialists. And what we tend to find is our coders, um, after they've had a few years of coding behind them, some love to stay in coding and that's great, but some like to move on. And so they, you know, they take some education on the side, they take some courses, we actually train them a lot in house, and they move into these data quality roles and clinical documentation roles. So it's a lot of kind of homegrown where you sort of yeah. promote within and you, and, and we also um, try to try to share a lot of the work that all of our different teams do with each other. So we try to, you know, show our coders what the data quality team does, what clinical documentation is and vice versa. Like, so we try to really have that culture of we love to promote within, we love to foster and mentor growth within. Um, So that's how we're kind of managing that. It's 
I, I mean, it's it's difficult too, right? Because sometimes you you don't always get people that want to move around. So that's how we've tried to manage that a little bit. Um, in terms of recruitment, um, yeah, we do. So in the Lower Mainland, we're quite. I, maybe I could talk about this just quickly. We're quite lucky because we do have a, a Douglas College um, in the Lower Mainland, and we do have a great working relationship with them in terms of supporting practicums. We actually also have a paid co-op education program with them, so we do take co-op students um, in their last semester, and we bring them on site and um, have them start to code day surgery charts. We train them up, and then we tend to hire. Um, from from the college, which is great, but I know that not everyone has the luxury of being um, so fortunate to have a school so close and and to be to be able to have those relationships. So, um, it is quite difficult. There is there is quite a struggle, I think, still out there. Um, I think too there are you know more colleges sort of popping up um, across the country too to to teach the HIM program. Um, I think. Colleges, too, are getting um, a bit more flexible in terms of teaching virtually as well. So because not everybody can move, right? Some people, um, not everybody can move to go to school. And then, of course, there's institutions like yours where it's very flexible in terms of, you know, you could have somebody working um, already in the healthcare space that just wants to either, you know, um, get some more education or go into maybe a different role. So you're offering those courses virtually, which is really, really helpful for people. But um, yeah, there is, <laughs> it's, it's definitely on the radar, I think, for a lot of folks that there is, you know, we're at, we're at that stage where we do have a lot of um, people retiring out of HIM and maybe not so many people coming into HIM. And I think, you know, another good strategy is actually just spreading the words, things like doing these podcasts and actually explaining to people what HIM is, right? And um, because, again, we've said it probably 40 times already, people really don't know who we are. So, you know, just sort of getting out there and promoting the career and promoting what it means and, and, and the impact it has on the whole healthcare system, I think, is helpful. Did I answer your question or I feel like? Yeah, I'm yeah, I think so. I mean, so, I mean, one, it's, I guess, to wrap a few things together here, it's not a disappearing profession. It's an evolving profession, perhaps is one way to say it. Um, and um, yeah, I guess that computers and AI aren't stealing people's jobs. It's and the way the system is changing, that there's more demand for this profession than there's ever been, except, you know, the use of technology perhaps is going to be more integral to how people are working going forward. Is that absolutely? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think. Yep. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to mention just um, one thing too. When if you want to talk about sort of data use and how it's becoming uh, quite a bit more prevalent that timely data and lots of data is 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 really needed. Um, could talk a bit just about the COVID pandemic and you know, how that changed a lot of our data collections and how we, um, we in the province of BC, we were able to actually report COVID cases um, every week. Uh, we were reporting, you know, what we were seeing in the, in the hospitals and in the emerges, we were reporting that to Kaihai and the ministries on a weekly basis, which is 
sort of not the way we work, right? We, we work on a period by period basis, but we were able to um, sort of stand that up quite quickly and do a lot of data quality and validation in the back end. And we were reporting for actually quite a long time, over a year, just uh, those, those COVID cases. And that was really helping the province and the Ministry of BC with their planning and understanding what was happening with the folks, right? Um, throughout the province um, with this awful pandemic. And um, we've actually just stopped that reporting just recently, I, I think about two or three months ago. So that was just kind of one example where, you know, just to sort of tie this whole conversation together where the impact of the coded data and the work that the, the HIM professionals do and how valued it is and how vital it is, um, like this pandemic has shown that, um, you know, quite a bit, so. Yeah, and, and and that's exactly actually where I wanted to go next with the question too is uh, is the real time use of the data. So I mean, in terms of the discussions about Kai Hai and other organizations like that that use the data, a lot of it is I guess retrospective and more longitudinal. Uh, but I think the example you used with COVID, I think, is a great one um, around data being used in a real time sort of scenario to change more immediate plans. Is there other ways that it's changing the way, you know, the operations within a hospital as well in terms of your clinical staff and the way that they're delivering care based on the work of your, yourself and your team? Um, like in terms of real-time data, data? Is that what yeah. you mean? Yeah. yeah. We don't really, it's difficult. We don't really provide a whole lot of real-time data outside of what we did for COVID, to be honest. Um, we don't do concurrent, like what we call concurrent coding. Um, you know, our, our knacker, so our ED reporting is done quite uh, quickly, but really in terms of like the DAD or the acute and the surgical daycare, we basically aren't able to do a lot of that in real time because we have to wait for the patient to be discharged, the reports to be done. It's it's kind of unfortunate. And I know that I've been involved in many conversations about what they deem like concurrent coding because they want the data quicker and faster. And mm -hmm. um, it all has to come together, though. That's the problem. It's not just the coding staff that can make that happen. It's the clinical workflows as well that need to be in place to allow that to happen. And that's just not there yet. Um, and so those conversations, you know, with the with the with all of the projects going on with the implementation of electronic records, um, sort of in all the organizations that, that I work in, that those conversations have basically been put on hold because we just we need to get that done first. And then we can start looking at ways that the electronic record can help. Perhaps we can use that to leverage, you know, um, more real time reporting, more concurrent data, which eventually is, I, I believe, where we would like to get to. I think that would be such a win-win, right, for 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 everyone in in yeah. the healthcare system. Yeah, it makes sense, and, mm -hmm. and 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 maybe that will be one of the lessons learned from, I guess, uh, COVID and and the pandemic in terms of how data can be used more meaningfully in that space. So, um, exactly. We'll yeah. Um, maybe just as we sort of get ready to close here, Monique, just a. Uh, other changes, I guess, that may be changing the profession. I do, I do wonder around like the way, even my own personal experience in terms of how I go to the doctor and you know through patient portals or getting my other information, um, you know, real time in front of me. Is that going to change the way uh, 
your profession works or the, the way health information continues to work, I guess, more broadly speaking? I think so, Dale. I, I think it definitely could. I mean, I think I think a lot of organizations are looking at patient portals to su- to support that patient, those patient asks, right, for sort of um, they want to come in. They don't necessarily want to come on site to get their documents, right, their actual papers. You know, they can do it from the comforts of their own home, and then they can actually just have the information sent to a physician, right? And that's all about leveraging, you know, those technologies that we're putting in place. I think it will change um, in, a, in a great way. I mean, I think there's always that privacy component as well, you know, about, you know, health information, like custodialship, who owns the record, who owns the information, how that's disseminated. You know, I think all of that, you know, comes into play. And I definitely know that that's on the forefront of the discussions, of course. But I, yeah, I can see it changing significantly. And I think that's, of course, what we all want, right, is like, we want things to be more accessible, we want things, um, we want people for their follow up care in the community to be timely. um, And that's how you just keep the population healthy, right. So I think there's definitely changes coming, I think, for HIM, there's a lot of involvement in those conversations, again, being, you know, such a, uh, on the registration and records management side, being so involved in that work, uh, the HIM professionals are the subject matter experts when it comes to the information, how it's collected, how it's disclosed, released, all of those privacy laws, reg- you know, regulations, rules, uh, however you want to frame it, um, I, there is definitely room for HIM at, at those tables and for that work. And, you um, it's a good thing. It's all a really good thing to, to help to help the patients with their ongoing medical journey just outside of those four hospital walls. Yeah, and and maybe an opportunity for for these uh, HIM professionals, these unsung heroes, I guess, to come out of the shadows a bit more as well and be seen yes. in terms of their value and their contributions to, you know, my experience. Yeah, I love that, Dale. You couldn't have said it any better. <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> Very good. Um, any other closing words then, Monique, in terms of what we can do to help share the word and and, and give this profession some of the, the due recognition? Yeah, just thank you, Dale, for having me here and sort of let me kind of ramble on and talk about, you know, my, my, my work world. I'm very passionate about HIM. I've been here a long time. And I just think, yeah, if you have the opportunity to talk to somebody and say, hey, I listened to this really cool podcast. Did you know that this happens behind the scenes in the hospital? Did you know when you go to the doctor and you, you get that report from, from you've been into the hospital, what happens with that actually? And do you know how the hospitals are funded? All of those kind of insightful questions. So I just really appreciate you being here and letting me letting me share a little bit of a glimpse into the world of HIM. Yeah, no, my pleasure, and I'm very happy to be able to share this important part of uh, of our health system with uh, with our listeners. So thank you very much for taking your time today um, to share with us that story, and uh, wish you the very best. Great, thanks, Dale. Okay, take care. You've been listening to the HQ, and I'm Dale Sherback, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.